The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. Welcome. For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, soul cravings. Well, this morning, though, we're going to look at a meaning and take, an, take a journey to continue the conversation regarding meaning. And, and I think all of us probably have had those moments where we've put um, meaning into something very meaningless. It could be a relationship. Shameless plug for the iPhone. All right, work for AT&T. There it is. Hey, anybody get the iPhone? I'm just... Did anybody? Did you, you did? Angry Verizon employee. <laughs> Verizon. AT&T raising the bar. So, yeah. So my day started Friday, that Friday at 3.45 in the morning. The first thing was a conference call at 4 a.m. because we went online hot at 5 a.m. And, you know, you saw probably in the news people were waiting in line for all that. So, And, you know, I, I guess that sticks out in my mind partly because I, I was thinking, boy, this is absolutely putting something meaning into something that's just a phone in the end. I mean, it's a cool device, don't get me wrong. And I hope that none of me, nobody from my actual job, like my bosses, actually hear this later on. But I guess they could podcast it later. Uh, there's always that danger. But, but uh, all of us have probably put, or have tried to put some meaning into something that was actually meaningless that left us without meaning still further and maybe a bit even more frustrated at the end of that. I, I think if you would categorize this, the meaningless things could actually have been a relationship, it could have been things you've owned or things you've done and activities where you were hoping that it would give you some sort of, some sort of meaning. Um, when I was 20, wow, has it been three years already? When I was 20, it's not that funny. When I was 20, um, 30 years ago, there was, um, boy, I, I really hit the wall hard. And uh, I look back at that time as probably one of the darkest moments in my life. It was one of the darkest years. It was also a collision of, of love and meaninglessness and, and love and frustration and love and despair because it's the same year that I met Lilia, my wife. And uh, so I was sharing with her some of the thoughts I had regarding God and things in general, and she latched on to this idea of connecting to God through Jesus Christ. And her life went from meaninglessness to to complete connection with God. And she literally just had like a transformation. Some people have a gradual change. Hers was literally overnight. And I was on a journey, um, as I've often joked, I'm going insane and I'm taking you with me. And, and so she had to live through some of that experience with me. At 27, I had been married at that point about six years, had all three of our kids that we currently have. And, and I recall thinking, wow, this is it. I'm, I'm looking at another 20, 30, 40 years of my life, and this is it. And I recall the, the, the one of several counselors that I saw at the time said, you, you can't be having your midlife crisis this soon. And I, 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 yet here I am. You know, I've always wanted to overachieve. And I thought, well, at 27, maybe that is a good midlife crisis because that means I'd hit 54, right? You know, that, that's midlife in your 20s or 30s, correct? You don't, you, don't, you don't have a midlife crisis at 50 unless you're going to plan on being 100. And so 
I thought about this again at 37 and even at 47, you know, the meaning and purpose and what is it that you're supposed to be doing with your life and where, where are you going. And in fact, it wasn't even so much that I had a concern about dying, though that was part of it. It was the idea that I kept living. Ever had that? And up until a few months ago, I, I, I literally read the obituaries almost every single day. And that even sort of fed that frustration. Because I would see the lives of people who were good. People that were veterans, people who were created causes and community and served humanity. And some of them were very, very young and some were older and, and, and they were dead. And I would, I would sit there reading thinking, then why am I here? You know, how am I paying the rent to justify my existence and care for humanity? And so the search continued for meaning, whether it was in careers or people or activity. And uh, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, I, I, I work with AT&T now. I started back in 1978, but I've gone back four different times. As my wife knows that every two years or so, I have to reinvent myself and do something new and different. And she's often joked, you know, we've never been rich, but I've never been bored. So at least that was a plus for her. And if you were able to ask the, the, the smartest guy around, what's the meaning of life? What, what would give my life meaning? Wouldn't that be a plus? I mean, if you could ask somebody to tell you exactly what it would mean to have meaning in your life, wouldn't that be a benefit? Because then you wouldn't have to waste time spinning your wheels and reinventing the wheel. That phrase, experience is the best teacher, is only partly true. Experience is the best teacher as long as it's somebody else's experience. Why, why relearn what doesn't work? Why rediscover what's painful? Why we discover what's harmful and unhealthy and what's dark and what doesn't lead to a, a good end? And for many of us, we can actually tell the future. We just refuse to. We refuse to connect the dots to our behavior and outcomes. And then there's the frustration of thinking that how, how can God be so unfair? How can life be so unfair? And, and, and many times we do just get what we've chosen. And for some of us, though, we get what we didn't choose. And that leads us maybe to more frustration and sense of what's, what's meaningful. If you have a, a Bible, or it'll flash here on the screen, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 for just a moment. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The wisdom and the knowledge of Solomon is actually legendary. And so here's the smartest guy that maybe ever lived, and this was his summation. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Er utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But what does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, turns to the north, round and round it goes, and ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are worrisome, and more than one can say. And the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Boy, uh, there's an upbeat message, huh? And Solomon is telling us that no matter where you are, no matter what happens in your life, that there's really nothing that changes. Now, let me, let me drive this home at some levels. You can 
say here's a fellow who was processing and, and perhaps a little bit disgruntled, but, but you, you need to understand who this fellow was. He, he was the king. And, and for those of us who are, who are a product of Western culture, the idea of a king maybe doesn't resonate. But as the king, you, you're the king. I mean, you, you're not the president having to check in with the cabinet. You know, you, you're not the mayor having to worry about the city council. You're the king. And what you say pretty much goes. This fellow had the time, had the money, had the resources, had the ability. And more importantly, he had the drive to find meaning in something. This wasn't some theory. This is a man that explored every possible way to find meaning in life. And he sums up the beginning of this, of this journal, this, of his diary, of what he wrote, what he experienced by saying, you know what, it's all meaningless. Nothing changes. But he says something else about this. He also says that there's nothing that's new. Verse 9. All things are worrisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, or the ear it's filled of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, Hey, look, this is something new. It's already here, long ago. It's, it's been before our time. There's no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. How many of you have, um, you've seen a movie, young actors, new guys, new faces, and then you're shocked to find out that it's a remake? 310 to Yuma. Anybody see that film? Right? It was good? Anybody enjoy it? Anybody see the, the original from 1957? But you know what I'm talking about, and, and I, I guess I've been around long enough to see movies being redone now, or classics that I've watched or, or enjoy seeing now being retold, because there's something powerful about a good story, and when it's retold, it's done well. I mean, some of you have been around to know that the first, the first Hulk movie, blue, right? So they said, you know, this is still possibly marketable, let's make it again, let's, let's get a different actor, and we have the Incredible Hulk, you know, new and improved, Hulk 2.0. I, I recall the, the, the fashions of the 70s. I, actually, you know, I can't even put that word in the same sentence, fashion of the 70s. I, I think the clothing of the 70s. This, this, this was a generation that put the yes in polyester. This was a horrible dysfunction that where, where clothing was, was, it wasn't released and shown to the public. It was vomited up on us. And, and we were forced to wear the most god-awful, oh my gosh, and... and <laughs> And, and if you had a cigarette anywhere nearby you and the cherry fell off, it melted your clothes. It would roll and just leave a trail like a snail that had crawled around your... And it was just horrible. And then the browns and the oranges, and it was, it was hideous. And then they came back. And a lot of you guys are wearing it. But you make it work, though. I mean, you... I, Looks good on you. Uh, oh my gosh! Okay, this is not going to leave the room. Freshman year college. Oh man, I, I'm pretty brave. I'm going to tell you something that's really horrible. My mom was a beautician. Let me just say that. And uh, so, oh my God, I actually had a I had an afro. I, I wish I was lying. 
And it was all done up, you know. And, and, and so for, to take a photo, to memorialize myself forever on celluloid, I, uh, my mom did my hair and I bought, um, I had this uh, tan uh, shirt with had a little brown window pane. Oh. It's something about Superfly or I don't know. I had a black leather sport coat. Oh, my God. Green, solid green pattern on pattern tie with, wait for it, green polyester pants. No, it, is, it doesn't stop. And, and, I, and I even had the black platform shoes. Oh, and I, I, I'm surprised I got married. Honestly, God. And, and I, I looked in the mirror and said, you know what? That guy deserves the wink and the gun. And <laughs> went to take my photo. Now, I'm not going to tell you what school that was so that you won't scour that journal. That I, it is horrible. I, I don't know what I was thinking. And here's what's funny. A lot of you think, oh, I, this is, I look great right now. I look good. 10, 20, 30 years from now, your kids will say, you are not cool at any level. Speaking about clothing and stuff like that, I was once joking with the kids that, that yeah, you know, your dad was cool. And then I got married and had kids and sucked all the cool out of me. And, and what I didn't know is that Lily was behind me telling the kids, he was never cool, really. <laughs> Nothing new. doesn't matter what it is. Politics, scandals, problems, fashions. And I recall when I was a teenager, I was exposed to the writings of Francis Schaeffer and other philosophers. And, and it dawned on me even then that, you know, maybe we don't wear togas, but we're the same people. Maybe we don't ride horses, but we've got the same problems. Maybe we don't, you know, live in, in grass huts, but we have the same relational challenges. Nothing changes. Not really. And then what's worse is that if you have a, a lust for certainty, if you just have to know, I'm telling you, I, I, whether you identify yourself as a follower of Christ or not, you're not going to know everything. You, you never get all the answers. And, and even if you're a follower of Christ and you say, oh, you know, when I, when I get to see him face to face and I connect to him in this, that wonderful mystical experience, it's known as heaven, you're still not going to know everything. That's just not something that we get. Look at verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under, the, under heaven. And what a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also the madness and the folly. But I learned that this too was chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. And the more knowledge, the more grief. There's just some things in life that are not explained. And even though I, 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 I knew better, that the difference between knowing and being connected to God in, in, a, in a powerful, mystical manner is that, that knowledge of something that should make sense and then it doesn't drives you further into despair. It's like more frustration, more cynicism, more disappointment. 
everything seems to blow, everything tastes lousy. It, it just it, there was this there was this consistent almost like fog of gray over everything in life. And I, listen, I, I loved my wife. I was happy being a father. I felt very fulfilled to a large extent. But there was just this gnawing sense that, that something was missing. And that I wasn't moving even close to where I was supposed to be. I wasn't, you know, apprehending, grabbing, or, or even just... In fact, not only did I not think I was on the road where I should be going, I didn't even know where that road could be found. I think some of us have... I understand that, don't we? I mean, this is not, I'm sure this is not just me. I was speaking to a young woman a couple of weeks back, and, you know, she's in a healthier place than what she was, you mentioned, just a few months ago. But she says, you know, every once in a while, I think about, like, our planet and people and God, and I just wonder, man, sometimes just things are bad, aren't they? I mean, they just, they just suck. And They do. Not everything works out well. There's not a, you, you know why we love the movies? That was random, wasn't it? Because <laughs> there's usually an ending, some sort of resolution. Not if you watch a French film, though. Theater of the Absurd. Black and white film war. Anybody ever heard of The Third Man? Oh, good. Did you, I, have you seen it recently? Okay, I, I went to see that film again. Orson Welles, Joseph Cotton. So well done. And um, boy, it just left you with this sense of something was empty and meaningless. And it's, it's, it's a classic, you know, it's part of the Criterion Collection. And yet I have to realize that sometimes some of those stories are actually true. You know, life doesn't always seem to work out the way we hoped it would. And so in chapter 2 of the same book, he, in verses 1 through 11, we're not going to read them, but I'm going to tell you that he's going to go on a quest for meaning. He is going to focus on trying to figure out what is meaningful. And he looked at everything. He looked at food. He looked at women. He looked at art. He built gardens. He made buildings. He created music. He had dancers. He had choirs. And, and on and on and on and on it went. And then at the end of it, he just says, uh, it's all meaningless. Nothing seems to work. In fact, if um, let's go to chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth, it's never satisfied with income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. What, at what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen another grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor, but that he can carry in his hand. And this, too, is a grievous evil. So here was a guy who understood all that he had and all that he possessed was going to change nothing that he ended up in the same place as a lazy man, as a foolish man, as a bad man in the grave. And that drove him to think, boy, everything is just meaningless. Now, I have to tell you that, that at this point in the story that I, I recognize how much I was sort of processing this. And I, 
This is a guy that's speaking. This is a man who's speaking in in a disconnected state from God. Now, this is a guy that's thinking that everything that I thought would actually give me meaning doesn't. In fact, let me say that this. That. Well, I'll just make the statement. Everything that you enjoy, people, pleasure, food, dance, whatever, everything that you enjoy, if it is eventually, will destroy and demean you. Now, I know that sounds sort of dramatic, but, but I think it's because maybe you might not have had to put enough time into it. You know, some of us have our, our mystical ADDs, you know, we, we, we search for that one thing, we find it for a little while, and, and before we have a chance to really get bored or burned with it, we move on. And so we just, we just keep looking for the next little thing. And, and eventually, if you stick with it long enough, you find yourself, this is horrible. What I find funny is, is how often... We, we have to force ourselves to get used to something unhealthy. How many of you, uh, how many of you remember taking up smoking for the first time? Just one honest person here, okay. How many of you are liars? All of you should be raising your hands. There you go, yes, it's well done. In the third grade, um, when I started smoking, uh, the, the, these kids gave me this uh, Salem with menthol, which is, you know... That's horrible. I, I, I think menthol was meant for you to quit smoking, you know, because it's just horrible. And, and I remember, you know, and, <coughs> and it would burn. It was just, <coughs> I'll get it. I'll get to it. And then you're learning to inhale for the first time. And, and you go green and you, and you just, it's revolting. And, and, and then within a, a short time, you know, it's Paul Mall and Camels where you have to spit out the tobacco. It's just stunning. And this is another reason why I was in the hospital for respiratory illness and I was out of school for six months in, by the fourth grade. I mean, I, I was committed to destruction. I mean, I wanted something to feel... I remember telling my wife, I'm so tired of being bored, I wish I was just scared. Don't you guys ever want to feel something? And I always felt that I'd rather go to bed scared or, 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 or tired than bored, but I was just bored of everything, quickly. And... Um, this is why, for some reasons, even though I have this un- unnatural fear of heights, like right now, I'm a little shaky at the stool, um, I-, I would go to places that were uncomfortably high just to feel something, like, okay, I'm alive. Church helped. Connecting to God helped. But somehow there was just... I, I don't know if I could actually... I don't know if you're enough. And I actually thought that there was something else out here apart from him, that would make me the best me I could be. So I I, I wanted to believe in God, but it wasn't satisfying, it seemed, where I was actually living. Um, After a pretty difficult year, I remember 1996, for some of you that's history, I was at the Orange Crush at 4 in the afternoon, 4.30 or so. And if you don't know where the Orange Crush is, that's where every car west of the Mississippi goes to for some reason. It was, the middle, it was summer. It was hot. Uh, the air conditioning in my car, of course, wasn't working. 
And there was just one painful event that had happened after the other. And I recall, this was like a bad breakup. I remember this. I recall actually saying to God that this whole thing has been a lie. That you're not good. You're not even kind. And I'm done. I know you could kill me. I know you can beat me up. Okay, you win. But I really want nothing to do with you. And continue to drive home. Now, if that was a movie, the anti-hero in the story would have, you know, you would have seen him walk into his home, close the door, and it would have faded to black. And then the scene would have opened up again, let's say a morning scene, but it would have said two years later. Now, during those two years... Everything was painful. Everything. It wasn't good anywhere in my life. It, it was just this constant dull ache, and it affected everything. Now, my wife was moving on in her own life, but um, I, I, just, I just couldn't go where she was. I wanted to. And often, we would just communicate through letters. That's how bad it was getting. It was, I, I, I didn't want to hurt this person anymore, I felt I was failing in every area of my life, and, and yet I didn't know how to fix it. And the obvious thing to me, connecting to God, seemed so cliche that I thought, there's got to be something else. And so I still kept looking. Then I recall speaking to God again. And this is where I learned at some level, and I, I want you to hear me when I say this, but I think at some level, I learned that at some powerful moment that God almost doesn't have any self-respect, that he would still connect with us when we say we're done. And it changed everything, the connection. But now there was some backstory here. But I got to tell you, at that moment on that freeway, I was just tired. I still went to work and I still did, you know, what I was supposed to do. But I got to tell you, it just seemed like I was pushing a rock uphill. Like, like everything in life was passing me up. I had lost any opportunity. The years of the locusts, you know, everything was gone. And I was left with dust and ashes. And it seemed horrible. You know what's funny? I... I, I I, did, I even knew that I couldn't blame anybody else. I also realized that at some level, I wanted someone to take control. I wanted someone to take control of life, but not control of me. You know how you want that freedom to be you? And, and I realized that at some level, that freedom to be me had brought me to that point. There's something strange about this... Um, relationship with God. And if you're one of those people who are just wondering, you're kind of dipping your toe in this, is this maybe something for me? Let, let me say that at some level, everything is reversed. One of the most uh, provocative books I've read in a while was a book by uh, Arthur, uh, author Paulo Coelho. It was entitled, Veronica Decides to Die. And it's one of the few times I think where the author kind of tipped his hand in the title where the book was going to lead. But it was at that moment where I decided that I, I really 
don't need more of me. I need more of somebody else. Something that would actually liberate me. And it was that moment when I just, I guess, volunteered to die. That life was released. And it's spilled out into every area of my life. And that was gradual. I mean, I had built up a lot of negative momentum. But it changed, it come. So let me show you the passage or the chapter that actually made those differences. Let's go to Psalm 73. Now before we go there and read, let me read, before I read it to you, I want to introduce you to three people. Um, they're not here this morning, but because they're gone. One was Moises, one was a man named Abel, and one his name is Dennis. Moises was a 20-year-old young male Hispanic who was uh, murdered um, near the doorstep of his home. Um, this is when I was a chaplain with the sheriffs, and I was called out by the family. They wanted clergy. Eighteen hours later, Abel, my father-in-law, passed away in the hospital. And, and a few weeks after that, Dennis Lakamari, probably one of the most um, decent guys I've ever known. You know, he was a handsome man, a man's man, a coach, um, loving, kind, full of Christ, full of life, uh, passed away after losing his battle with pancreatic cancer. Now, I have to tell you that it was at that point I still had a little bit of cynicism left in me, and I thought, why do good people die? See, the thing about Moises, here's the thing that was strange about it once I arrived on scene, was that he was, you know, a gangbanger and still had marks on his body from the tattoos and scars. But he had decided to change his life and make a turn and he was murdered on his way home from church. Abel, my father-in-law, was a guy that did the best he could with what he had and lived his life essentially the majority of it, the vast majority of it, apart from God. But oddly enough, about six, seven months prior to his sudden passing, something had happened to him. I don't know what conversation he was having. I don't know what soul-to-soul conversation he had with God, but something absolutely changed. After years of sharing with him, praying with him, um, I don't know. Who knows what happened? Something changed. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost slipped, and I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant, and when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why? Well, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong, and they are free from burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills, and therefore pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds knows no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, and in their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And then they say, well, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? These are folks that not only don't believe in God, but even if he did exist, he's got nothing on me. He can't touch me. Nothing's going to change. And this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree and they increase in wealth. 
So surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. But if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand this, all this was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. Now, let me point out something here to you so I understand this in context. There really isn't a a large church building at this point. This is really more entering a place place of connection to God or a presence of God. Okay? This is what Asaph is talking about. So he's, he's observing all of this that goes on that we would see today. Then he connects to God. And this is what he says. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. And how suddenly are they destroyed, completely slept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant, and I was a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you'll take me into glory. So, who have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail. But my God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. And those who are far from you will perish, and you destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell all of your deeds. The, um, it seemed like the meaning I was searching for brought me right back to where I had started as a teenager in seeking to connect to God. And I can tell you that it, it wasn't as if every answer was satisfied, but the big one was that God is actually good and life has a purpose and a meaning. If, if I was going to sum up this for you a little bit, here's what I want to tell all of you. And this is no matter where you are in your journeys as spiritual beings. Is that in, in, in the story of Christianity, in, in, in the story, in the collection of these stories in this book, what God has spoken, how he interacts with people and people interacting with God, that this is the only story where the creator has compassion on his creation and comes for them. This is the only story where he steps into your story and you can step into his. This is the only story where the maker gives meaning to humanity. Um... If you find yourself at that place where you're wondering who you are, why you are, where are you going, I encourage you to consider Jesus Christ. Not because it's a set of rules to follow. Not because it's like, oh, this, if I'm church, I'm not naughty and I'll be good and then life will be good. No. Sometimes bad things still happen and don't always make sense. But God still gives a meaning deeper beyond than just answers. He gives himself not principles, but a person to fall in love with. This is what I encourage you with. Hey, let me pray with you for a moment before you leave, and then we have a few more announcements for you. Father, thank you for being the God that comes for us and cares for us. And I thank you for letting me step into this dream 
of my life right now at this moment. When I pray for folks who are wondering and struggling and thinking is that you would speak to each of us in a way that we hear you uniquely, personally. By encouraging, by loving. It's surprising that you're far more humble than we'll ever understand, certainly more humble than us, that you would actually serve your creation and care for them. And I thank you that we can be heard by you and found by you and embraced by you. And so it is with confidence that I thank you for hearing our prayers. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.